This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I am Dr. Jenna Ermold, and as always, I am joined by my colleagues, uh, Drs. Kevin Holloway and Andrew Santinello. Want to say hi, guys? Hey, everybody. Hey, how's it going? All right. And today we are very excited to have uh, our colleague and um, somebody that we have definitely been excited to have on this podcast for a long time, Dr. Peter Turk. So welcome, Peter. We're excited to have this conversation with you. You want to start by just sharing a little bit about your background, uh, who you are, and, and then we'll launch into talking about integration of technology into clinical work. So thanks, Jenna, for having me. I've also been very much looking forward to our conversation today. Um, for many years, my work's focused on PTSD and evidence-based treatments within the VA. Uh, for the last few years, I've moved to the University of Virginia, where I'm still focusing on evidence-based treatments and community outpatient settings, sit on an NIH technology transfer committees for, um, to review the R41 through 44 series quite often. Um, so I I've, have I've a ringside seat for the new apps coming out in the mental health field, which is a lot of fun. And I also work with a mental health company, specifically Virtually Better in Atlanta, Georgia, to develop apps uh, for mental health. I'm really excited to talk about uh, my foibles and the things that I think are are interesting and exciting coming down the pike. Awesome. Thank you for that uh, background. And, you know, I, I think it's always an interesting, interesting to hear how you how you got into this um, sort of slice of our field, because, um, you know, you've sort of been on the forefront of how do we use technology to enhance clinical care to, um, you know, to make it more available to different populations. Like what made you decide you wanted to move into that? So I think that, you know, for me, it all started uh, back in 2009 when we were using telehealth in the VA to just uh, to do patchwork for psychiatrists when they were unable to attend or they were absent from their clinic, we would patch in a prescriber to our community-based outreach clinics that they could get their prescriptions done. And then there was this veteran who uh, had PTSD and everybody was really pulling for him in his own community and in his CBOC, as we say in the VA world, the community-based outreach center, um, to get prolonged exposure. And so we decided to give it a shot over telehealth um, and it worked really well. Um, it certainly turned his life around and really opened my eyes up to the wonders of telehealth. And then so um, I guess facing some amount of outrage that we would do exposure therapy over telehealth back then, we decided as a group, uh, myself, Rana Chirno at the VA at the time, um, to lean into the telehealth issue and um, study it. And the more we studied it, the more we found that you know, the effect sizes were really good. And so we became sort of advocates for this in the field. And I think that that was my first entry um, into technology in the mental health way. Now everybody's very familiar with telehealth and that's fantastic. Uh, you know, it's one of the, one of the few positives of COVID obviously. Um, but from there, I kind of, kind of got interested in virtual reality for exposure therapies. 
um, and then app development sort of just happened organically over time. It's interesting to to hear you kind of describe your entry into it. And I, I think I hear that similar story kind of between the interface of technology and, and medical care, but specifically in the mental health field, there's a problem when we can't do it the way nor- we normally would. So I guess we'll try this other way. And then even after it seems to be helpful, why don't we do this more often? There's resistance to it, you know, well, it's not good enough. And, you know, we just did this to plug a hole and the work you're doing is, is, is really proactive in a lot of ways, you know, kind of looking ahead, not just trying to solve a problem that just came up organically, but how can we take this technology forward and offer maybe some new things that we couldn't offer before? Well, thanks for saying that, Andy. I mean, I think that we're, we are all trying to solve problems and look, look a little bit farther down the road, um, having touched a hot stove so many times with dissemination in non-technology settings, when we throw technology into the EBT mix, we all have to be really aware that this is now another living, breathing organism, if you will, at the table that we need to think about when we think about dissemination. And a lot of times we think of technology as a doorway to help dissemination, but if you don't really plan for it and use your scientific method, it's just another complicating factor, one more reason why people wouldn't do evidence-based treatment. So I think that I'm really on board with with that sentiment of sort of trying to anticipate what the problems will be. So, you know, that, that's a topic that's really interesting to me as well. So, you know, before being at, at uh, CDP, I was at T2 and we did some work with Barbara Rothbaum and, and Virtually Better and, and, and trying to disseminate virtual reality exposure therapy for, for PTSD in particular. And that was always a question on my mind when we would do these training workshops is, you know, we're, it's not just training PE, for example, and then throwing a computer on it. There was there was intentional focused training on you know using the computer system and how do we make that work and what are the changes or the alterations to the protocol and the question always came up during those workshops and even in my my own thinking about it later is you know, we, we we've got a lot of studies that support using prolonged exposure therapy in this particular instance and we hopefully will have some studies supporting using virtual reality uh, therapy you know as an as a I don't know, an adjustment or a, or a version perhaps of PE. The question always has been on my mind, okay, what are we testing? Are we testing exposure via virtual reality? Are we testing this particular software package? Are we testing the implementation? And there's all those complicating questions that come in. So it's it's always interesting to me to, to think through those pieces as well. Yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's the problem, right? So if we look in yeah. the, just the last five years, we'll see over 40 reviews of mental health technology, right, published out there. Um, and so just because one researcher got one widget to work with one population doesn't mean that that's going to disseminate or work with another population because it's right, really right. all about the usability, Kevin, right? You're talking about how, how usable is one solution from the other. And I think that that's, that's our job is to sort of design proof of concept um, and then really pivot to usability and dissemination. And, and even thinking about, you know, what are those, I don't know, critical elements that are making this work if we find that it's working in a particular situation? Because again, oftentimes I'll read articles that are talking about demonstrating the the usability or the effectiveness or efficacy of this particular technology solution. And then it seems to just almost automatically generalize then to using virtual reality for all things or using apps for all things. And it's like, well, no, you only tested this one solution. So. Right. Yeah, but so much really yeah, so great I mean, I, work to do, right? 
There is. And I feel like that we, uh, we, we're slowing science down, I think, by focusing on evidence-based treatment as a, as a brand, right? So, you know, consider PE or even behavioral activation or um, something maybe more complex like ACT, right? Um, a lot of folks want to have their branded mobile application solution that matches their EBT. And that makes sense. It's part of, you know, human nature to want to have your own little thing. But what I think it's done is it's really spread to a lot of false assumptions that we make um, in general about how best apps can serve our, our clients and our, our fellow colleagues um, serving clients. You know, I think one of the, the big assumptions that is false is that new applications are needed for each individual new EBT, mm. right? Another um, related false assumption is that EBTs are best served by one and only one product, app product, and that, you know, EBT technologies should include all components of an EBT, right? So I think that, that that's really slowing us down and we're not being able to kind of use the technologies piecemeal to piece together behavioral solutions. Um, if, if I can, I, I, I can, I can highlight a story that would, would bring it to light a little bit. If you can, yeah, if you can imagine... You know, if you can imagine like a, a branded mobile application technology that's 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 attached to a specific EBT, um, and it doesn't matter what it is, let's say it's your self-tracking of specific behaviors, okay? The target behaviors, let's say, occur at multiple times during the course of the day and potentially at random, unpredictable times as behavior does. So mobile technology might be a really good, useful tool Right? It's a simple, elegant solution with a fairly high likelihood of success if you're just tracking specific behaviors. But our branded solutions will rarely stop there. So, you know, doing the planning process, uh, you know, the EBT team that's eager to take advantage of all the things the mobile platform has to offer might be tempted to load the psychoeducation treatment materials onto the mobile app and the mm -hmm. user interface. Um, they might decide to enter in a behavioral hierarchy, right? Um, and then maybe doing the development, the PI gets this idea to uh, put in like prompts, like, uh, you know, uh, motivational prompts, like you can do it or things like that. That sounds like a really good idea to the team. Um, and then somebody else, maybe a long line says, you know, we should put in emergency numbers in case somebody's feeling suicidal. Right. And so in this example, um, the whole treatment protocol and then additional materials ends up being loaded onto the mobile application solving a lot of problems that, that didn't really exist. Um, you know, there was no necessary identified need to have the psychoeducation materials always available. Like clinicians rarely think, oh, you know, if only my client had constant access to my psychoeducation materials, <laughs> this case would have gone better, right? Um, you know, in this example, there is no preliminary user data to test the rationale or, you know, the, the benefits or the potential frustrations of constructing uh, and arranging a behavioral hierarchy on a two by three inch mobile screen. There is no data to inform the urgency or effectiveness uh, or unintended consequences really of um, conveying emergency numbers in the context that was originally just designed to track behaviors. Um, you know, the motivational messaging that sounds like a really good idea in, you know, when you actually uh, carry that out into implementation, the prompts to track the, um, the behaviors and the motivational messages might take an extra three seconds to read and an extra click to actually get through. So you're actually maybe making it harder for people to track the behaviors that you wanted them to track to begin with. 
Um, so the result is a solution that has this huge footprint, and it could have had this very elegant solution, but because there's this gravity to make it a branded solution tied to the whole EBT, um, it's just a lot more to bug test, to beta test, to test for usability, and it's a lot more to test for clinical efficacy as well. What's working, what's not working, we don't know. And all that sort of makes for very heavy mobile applications. And anybody that's used to using mental health mobile applications, um, you know, has had this experience. It seemed, they seem like heavy apps often. Um, and what we're looking for, I think, are lighter apps, more usable apps. And um, you know, we don't want providers to feel like they have to use an app tied to a specific treatment if they're trying to do something behavioral. All EBTs share very common things, tracking behaviors, encouraging mental awareness. And there's all kinds of apps we can use for this. Um, they, they're, they're not necessarily mental health apps. Um, Calendar, right, is a great app to use. Um, Outlook reminders, things like that, that I think are underutilized because people are looking for the EBT whole source solution. That's a really great point too, because you know, as I think about yeah, you know, some apps that I've come across, for example, and there's there are so many apps out there, and some of them are really fantastic, and some of them are less fantastic, you know. And I'm just thinking theoretically speaking, but you know, the the ones that that confuse me the most are the apps that almost replicate the device itself, right? Like so, an app perhaps that you know where a, a client can collect photographs that that remind them of good things or re, you know. I don't know, reasons to stay engaged in treatment. And then you can put in music here, you know, where, where you can go and collect this music. And then, you know, again, like you said, contact numbers for emergency or for therapists or for, you know, supportive others. And I wonder, like, did, did we just recreate the phone in the app, in, in, right? in a less usable, <laughs> more, less intuitive way, right? You know, right. it's such an interesting... Yeah, you know, um, way of thinking about it. Cause I, we talk so much about the science of evidence-based or developing evidence-based psychotherapies and disseminating them. And of course that's important, but you use that word usability a bunch. Mm -hmm. And from the, you know, the end user client side of it, um, what, what have you kind of seen? What do you, what do you suggest? What do you think is most important when it comes to actually getting a client to then pick up the app and use it to support therapy. You know, what, what do you, what do you think could be useful as, you know, apps continue to develop in the future? Yeah, I think that, you know, Andy, it, it goes back to um, making sure that what you're suggesting fits into their life. Right. And it is usable. If we look at how we use apps, how any individual uses apps, we use them a lot during the course of the day in tiny little increments. Right. So we're interfacing with an app for maybe 10 to 15 seconds at a time, maybe two minutes, right? So we're not interfacing with an app for a 60-minute session, right? And so the more that we can tack towards apps that don't try to replicate what we do in the real world in the digital space, but actually use the ecologically valid digital context, um, the better off we'll be. So, you know, I think that that's, you know, we call that a skeuomorph, right? When something uh, replicates um, something in the physical world unnecessarily in the app world. And so the classic example of a skewmorph is um, like maybe a little icon of a phone, of an old phone that has a handheld, right? That doesn't exist in the real world anymore. Or an alarm clock app that has a picture of an alarm clock. Those are very uh, you know, harmless skewmorphs. But when it comes to mental health implementation, if we're stuck in this idea that the apps are sessions, right? or our specific components of a treatment, we're not really taking advantage of how people use digital technologies. 
We need to be lighter. We need to be thinking, uh, you know, less content more often, I think. Um, and so to kind of pivot back to your question, I would say choosing apps that um, you test out as a hypothesis. Maybe this app will be good. You try it for a week, I'll try it for a week, and then we'll come together and we'll see what we think. And maybe we'll pivot to something else. Maybe, hell, maybe we'll go back to pen and paper. You know, um, we have to be thinking, you know, what's, what's going to get this to work for our client? Um, the other thing that I think is worth fighting for um, and is directly related to your question, Andy, is we all have to continue the, uh, the I guess the word is um, uh, advocacy, right, against institutions that want to overinterpret HIPAA and David data security, right? So what we know is we know people like to text. We know that. And you might even text your primary care provider because there's less hangups in the medical field than we have in psychology. And it is, for those of you in private practice or maybe who are bending the rules in institutions that text their clients, you know how easy and how useful this is, how you can get people to engage with treatment, less dropouts, more homework compliance, more connectivity, more therapeutic alliance, right? Just simply by texting. Um, but that becomes really, really difficult if you have an ISO, information security officer, that won't allow texting. And so I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going on and on about the simple question, but I think that we want, to, we want to go with what works, what's simple. We want to be able to tack away from the, the solutions that aren't working for us. And we want to be able to keep up the good fight and so that we can allow our clients the benefit and the common courtesy of using technologies uh, to the extent that they use them in the rest of their lives. One of the, the keys of what you said, at least for me, was we have to start thinking about the use of technology from the perspective of what technologies are useful versus from the perspective of mental health providers and how we do things. I love that term skewmorph. I'm going to use that constantly now. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Peter. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I, you know, it's the same thing happened to me, Andy. When I when I saw that that word was out there and it was, it was, it was developed a long time ago, I, I use it constantly now, too. And it reminded me a lot of, you know, some of the training, actually a lot of the training that we've done for years at CDP has been virtual through more recently through Zoom uh, and, and Kevin, uh, before he came to CDP along with Jenna, developed training through Second Life. And one of the, I guess, pieces of pushback, I think, and you guys let me know if this is accurate, that we've received is it's not, it's not the same as in-person training. It's not as good as in-person training. We have to make sure we're replicating stuff online exactly the way it is in person or else it's not as good, which, you know, um, it's sort of that idea of like, we need to skew morph things online to be the same. And it, that ignores some of the unique affordances of technology that we could really leverage and maybe do something slightly different or better not to replace, you know, an in-person therapy session or an in-person uh, training session, but to, to get at another piece of human behavior in a different way that could be useful. I think that's yeah, the comparison absolutely. that drives me nuts, right? Is the, the idea that it's got to be like what we're used to, right? It's got to be like what we're familiar with um, and, or, or, you know, or, or as good as or better than, right? And, and what's funny is that to me, that's not the comparison that's relevant. You know, we'll have folks say, well, you need to do training in person because that's better. You get better outcomes. Number one, we haven't actually seen that. We've seen that outcomes are at least as good and sometimes even better online. And number two, even if it wasn't as good, the comparison 
of, you know, in-person versus online isn't necessarily the most relevant. The, the comparison is how, how much are they learning compared to not learning at all? Because that's actually the alternative for a lot of people who are learning online. And similarly for therapy, right? We've seen a lot of this in the last year and a half. You know, the comparison of online therapy to in-person therapy, we, we really don't see a big difference. But even if there was a bit of a difference, the real relevant comparison is people getting therapy online versus not at all, uh, or, you know, or some kind of substandard version of that. So on the one hand, I think, you know, the, the relevant comparisons is an important is, is an important one, but also then too, let's not get limited by what we've always done. We, you know, we do it this way just because we've done it that way doesn't hold up when we, when we start exploring these alternatives. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And we've, we've talked about that point a lot, you know, what's the right comparison group for this. And especially when, when it comes to training, um, there's going to be people out there that have the fire in their belly to learn new things and to fight for their clients and to stay flexible. And there's going to be people that out that it's just not their bag, right? They mm -hmm. went to school, they learned their, they learned their thing. Um, and that's just human nature. And so I think right, that, right. you know, if we, if we point to the group that's doing the training because they, they need their CEs or their boss told them they had to, and we say, okay, if this, this, online format or this app mobile app based learning maybe is not is not working and that's why well that's not really true because it's probably we know when we do training that a certain amount of folks are just sitting there anyway um and it's still good for them to be exposed for stuff but you know when i think about doing a, a 40 person training for an evidence-based treatment um literally this is what i think and it's just anecdotal if i can get two or three people from that training to actually change the, the way they do things and become an advocate for that treatment. I feel like it's a success and I feel like it's worth it. Cause I mean, if you can get the two or three providers, I mean, that's hundreds and hundreds of families and clients and patients over the course of a career. Um, so it doesn't phase me at all to do a week long training for 40 people just to change two or three providers minds and ideas. Wrongly agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the, the cool things that, that you just speaking kind of made me think of is, you know, imagine a, a training that was actually supposed to be deployed as you were learning the therapy with a, with a client, right? So it's just, it's an asynchronous training that you, you pivot to right before every session and maybe even during the session and you work on the materials with the client together even. So the client's learning along with the therapist and they've got the support um, that's that's right there. Um, I think that would be a really cool model to explore and, and try out, especially because we know that it's the post-training supervision and implementation that, that stops people, even well-intended people, from carrying forward with right. their, their training and changing their, their, their behaviors. Um, so I'm really excited about asynchronous technologies. I'm really excited about crowdsourcing um, or, in this, in this sense, provider sourcing. Um, and so many of you have heard me talk about OCGO, which is a, a, a project that we've been working on with our partners at University of um, LA um, and UCLA, I should say. And so for the last like five years, we've been doing this randomized trial for childhood OCD, looking at this app where providers are crowdsourcing different exposure ideas for OCD um, and different psychoeducation materials that they can go online and they can say, oh, I like this one. I'm going to assign it to my client and they push it to their client's cell phone right then and there. Um, and so it's a, it's a cross between asynchronous um, crowdsourcing and asynchronous telehealth. So you can push a, a behavioral assignment to somebody's cell phone and they can do their, their exposure right there along with their cell phone, whether it's in a restaurant or in a bathroom or wherever. 
Um, and what gets shared is actually that digital template, not, no PHI. And it's a really fun platform for people to share ideas. And I think decentralizing this, unbranding things and putting the power in providers to share what works is really exciting for me. Um, and so, you know, if anybody wanted to try it, it's still under development, but there are free accounts for providers. You can go to oc-go.org and make your own account. And, um, you know, there's still some, it's not like a Disney level app, right? Because we developed it with <laughs> NIH funding, but it's very self-evident and you'll figure out ways to use it. And it's HIPAA compatible. You, compatible. you can use it with clients. Um, you know, there's still some glitches we're working out, but my, my hope is that folks will go on and at least see what's out there. They can, they can search the library for different symptoms or search terms. And mostly it's for OCD right now, but there's some PTSD stuff on there as well. So That's one, great. Go ahead. I'm Peter. sorry. That's okay. I, well, and I was going to say, we will make sure to put some of those links in the show notes too. So folks can um, have that at the ready. Um, and I, I, one of the things that we always do in this podcast, because it's called practical for your practice, right? We want people to walk away with actionable intel, things that they can actually take forward and apply. So if, if you were to, you know, again, we've got lots of different providers who are out there, some in community mental health, some in VA, some DOD. And if you were to kind of give a couple pieces of actionable intel, how can these providers most successfully integrate technology into their practice, app use into their practice? What, what couple few pieces of advice or actionable intel would you want to share with those folks? So I think that um, you, you could start by using the apps that your client already has, right? So being interested, what apps do you, instead of coming with a solution, Right. Say, you know, what what apps do you often use on your phone? And that'll give you a flavor for if they use apps, what apps they use. Um, I think Kevin said earlier, you know, the, the use of the camera, everybody uses their camera. So that's a really nice place to start. Um, you know, doing your exposure this week, I want you to go take a picture of the Walmart you're going into. Um, you know, and then that can be a trophy that we can celebrate. It's also accountability in session. Right. Did, you, did I do it? I'm going to be asking for this. Um, you can ask people to do, you can make it fun. You can say, go take a picture of, you know, the Texas Pete uh, ingredients um, in the store, right? That you know that that's sort of in the middle of the store. So they can't get to it by staying in the periphery as our PTSD clients like to do. Um, so I think starting simple with what's on their phone, if you're not sure that somebody's going to adopt them, something is very, very important. Um, you can use maps, like I was saying, calendar uh, reminders, things like that. But if we join with the client and understand how they use their phone to begin with, I think that that's the first assumption that we needed to get, you know, and if we start there, then I think that's, that's the recipe for success. Um, you know, there was a, uh, there was a really cool paper. I mean, it's actually just face meltingly cool um, by Brian Brunel. And it was back, it was back in 2013. It was just a case report. Um, and he was treating uh, selective mutism. And this, this, this uh, case report outlined all the off-the-shelf free apps that he did to use that, um, and it worked really well. I was able to – I'd never treated selective mutism in my practice before. I was supervising a case, and I came across this paper, and I just replicated what he did, and it was fantastic. So do you remember that old candle-blowing app where there's a candle and you kind of blow it? And yes. Quiver? Yeah. So it's a free app. He started with that to make to, to get the child to just – to shape the behavior and then make guttural sounds. Um, and it was just a one. And then he graduated up to the different app after that. And it was a really well done, great example of everyday apps we can use to solve solutions without having to have a branded solution that, that maybe we have to pay for or get training for. 
So a question I was going to ask before some of these tips, and maybe this goes along with tips too, is, you know, there's so much out there. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of apps and there's hundreds and hundreds of solutions. And as you were saying, you know, some of them are very simple and elegant and some of them are very complex and, and crowdsourcing. I agree. Just that, that seems like the way of the future. There's so much wisdom and knowledge and expertise out there and not everything is created equal. Like there's some really good stuff and there's some really not terribly useful stuff. Do you have any tips for providers who are you know, kind of like sifting through this wealth of stuff available out there of, of how do you, how do you judge or determine, you know, what, what is a useful application or, or technology or, or app versus those that are not so much? Yeah. So I think that if we're just using office self solutions, that that will be self-evident, but if we're using a mental health solution, right, it would be great, uh, you know, for them to, to sort through and get, at least get the apps that have some evidence behind them. Somebody mm-hmm. tested this in the real world. And we're not necessarily looking for clinical efficacy. We're looking for a process, right? So this company made this app, but then they threw it to providers. And those providers, whether or not it works clinically, they helped the app developers find the bugs, find the dead ends, make it a little bit more usable, um, things like that. So I think starting with uh, apps that actually have some amount of evidence that there was there was a user base or there was stakeholders that were clinical that went into it rather than just a company pumping out stuff um, and seeing what will stick. And um, the other thing is that um, ratings, right? So we all look at ratings. Um, that's, a, that's a really good indicator too. You know, if something only has three or four ratings on it and it's been out there for three or four years, well, maybe it's not the app for me, you know. But I also think that it's not... Um, it's almost like Kevin, like 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 the question. It comes from a perspective of how can I get started in using apps, and that's almost like a like a philosophical thing. Like I want to get started using apps. When really, if we actually start with a problem that they're having, right, right there'll be much more uh, gravity, natural gravity for the clinician to want to solve that problem using a mental health technology or using an off-the-shelf technology. Um, so I would say maybe just start with where you're having problems in your practice and then taking a step back and saying, okay, how can technology help me me solve this particular problem with this particular client? Um, I think is a really great, useful place to start. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can look at, um, remember when PE coach came out, Mm -hmm. right. And how, how great that when it first came out, everybody loved it for the recording, right? And people used it right. for the recording sessions because it solved that problem so <laughs> elegantly. And way back in the day, people really weren't using it for the hierarchies and all the psychoeducation, education. And it got better and better as it went along. And now I think people are using it um, you know, more fully as it was intended. But that was a great example. Hundreds of clients and clinicians used that app just for the recording function. Yep. And so I would say, let's follow that example. Let's use what works in different apps. We don't have to take the whole solution. Um, and just 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 piece these things together. But I think those are great. Like those are great. Those three pieces of actual intel, really. One is how does your client use their phone? How does your client use their apps? Take the time to kind of. And I don't think a lot of people ask that or or kind of get right. a sense of that. Um, you know, to do do a little bit of homework and and know how this app was developed, and uh, you know, make sure that that you're checking the ratings and and get some of the, that information. And you don't you know, giving permission to use parts of apps is fine. Like you don't have to digest the entire app or use the entire app, the bits of it, maybe, you know, what you want to use and, and clients have permission to do that and providers have permission to do that. And I think those are all great recommendations. Peter, we are 
going to be running out of time here, so we will wrap up for today. But again, um, very grateful for the time you spent with us and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully, we'll have you back again yes. as OZGO kind of continues to develop. And we, we wish you and your team tons of luck with that. I think all of us are really excited to test that out a lot more as well. Um, and we, we hope to circle back with you sometime soon on some other front. Yeah, maybe oh, when COVID's you, over. We can do a skew more of the podcast, but have it be in person. And I, I told you I was not going to oh stop using that. I would love that. I mean, I think that the, the work that the Center for Deployment Psychology has been doing and has been doing for years is great. And I, I feel really lucky that um, that I'm, I'm considered a partner and I want to continue to be a partner. Um, it's just such a great organization. And I think that all of us that are, are in the field together, we have to find these, these ways to connect and learn from each other. So this is just a great forum for me. I had a lot of fun. Great. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Practical for Your Practice. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.